and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where I take a deep dive into an obscure topic from history and I tell y'all about what I find. I am your host, Kelvin, he, him pronouns, and back with me today are my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-hosts. Say hi. Hi. Hi, I'm Ryan, he, him pronouns. <laughs> I'm Laura, she, her pronouns. Welcome back, y'all. Uh, today we are back at it again with the last of our summertime blockbuster mini-series of episodes. Today is going to be fun, as always, of course. So go tell your friends about us. We could see where you live. Not exactly, but that sounds less menacing. But yeah, tell your friends, or else. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> <laughs> right, threatening the guests, yes. the listeners. I yes. see how that does. Uh, we'll see how it works. So where was I? Oh yeah, today's gonna be fun because today's episode is gonna be about the past of people trying to figure out about the past. It's a very meta kind of episode. Ooh. But yeah, let's see. So if I've piqued your interest, uh, let's dive down the rabbit hole. pleasure of going through the childhood phase of loving dinosaurs me personally no but i completely get the allure i think i think i had a small version of that where i didn't like memorize their names or fun facts but i just like playing with toy dinosaurs and stuff Mm -hmm. you know it was cool to go to like the museums and stuff but i never really like committed too much to memory yeah uh i was one of those kids Probably the first dream job I ever had was to be a paleontologist. Of course. I had dinosaur toys. I had dinosaur books. I watched dinosaur documentaries and movies. Shout out to the Dinotopia miniseries and the Disney movie Dinosaur. Those are the most immaculate. I even collected fossils, so that was kind of neat. But yeah, I, I was a dinosaur kid for a very long time. A, a random fact that I actually heard not too long ago was like, apparently paleontologist stuff like peaked in the 90s or something. So like there was a t- there was a survey that went out that well, it was like kids or something. And, you know what they wanted to be when they grow up. And at one point it was like I think up to three percent of children said that they wanted to be paleontologists was their number one job, mm-hmm. which You're means one of those. which means that would like completely flood the entire like paleontology 
industry or something where it's like if everybody that wanted to be was a paleontologist it would just be like two, 20 people at the same job site like fighting over it just so many people were interested in like the 90s for whatever reason well the reason is because whenever you say the words dinosaur and blockbuster together uh what comes to mind Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. It was the movie that came out in 1993. And yeah, it made everybody obsessed with dinosaurs because it's a good movie. For those who live under a rock and don't know what Jurassic Park is, it's a Steven Spielberg film, which is based on a book of the same name, kind of like Jaws from a couple episodes ago. Dinosaur theme park, dinosaurs eat people, fun time but it's a very good movie they are iconic like you said served inspiration for an entire generation of paleontologists but the movies are also notable because uh, according to our current scientific understanding of dinosaurs the dinosaurs in it are not especially accurate for our current understanding most notably the Velociraptor is the big one, and T-Rex is also another. But uh, the Velociraptor is the most egregious because in the movies you've both seen, I'm assuming. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Velociraptors are super tall, scaly, six-foot, super intelligent, terrifying <clears throat> creatures. In reality, they were about three feet tall, and the best description I've heard of them are terror turkeys. <laughs> I yeah, that's the vibe I got from them. Like, I feel like they the movie got them right. They were just too tall and too fast. Yeah, I, I think I think Jurassic Park was just like, what is the closest thing we have now to dinosaurs? And it was like alligators, crocodiles, reptiles. So everything has to look like a reptile, even if it's like a terror chicken, mm -hmm. a terror turkey. Yeah. So the model for those dinosaurs, you know, they look different than current understanding. But that's just how the field works. We're constantly learning new things. We learned a lot of things because all the kids that were interested in dinosaurs from watching the movie then became paleontologists and made science happen. So we're always learning new things, but the point of this episode is kind of go over an earlier history of paleontology whenever people were starting to figure out what these things were and uh, the most dramatic episode of early paleontology, which is known as the Bone Wars. God. So, yeah. If y'all are ready, let's get into it. Cue the intro music again. Yeah. Okay, so. First off, people have found dinosaur bones for a very long time. Ancient Greeks wrote about sea life fossils... You know, they're found all over the world. Different cultures had different explanations to it. It's why dragons are things, because people found bones and didn't know what they were. Got used in medicine, so people would eat fossils. And, you know. Oh, I heard about, like, the ancient Egyptians that, like, the people that, like, ate mummies. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That's more modern. The mummy juice. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, sidebar. <laughs> yeah. It, people ate weird shit. And, uh... But yeah, so people have been finding bones, but they never really had a good explanation for what they were until the 17th and 18th centuries. And even after people began guessing that these things used to be animals and had like 
the concept of extinction was not really out there yet because evolution wasn't really out there yet. And so uh, it took until those, it took for those concepts to be uh, accepted in the mid 1800s for people to invent the terms paleontology and dinosaurs and understand what was going on. So paleontology, the word, was coined in 1822, and a guy, William Buckland, uh, he's considered to be the discoverer of dinosaurs with his description of Megalosaurus in 1824. A couple other famous paleontologists from this early period are George Cuvier, Mary Anning, and Mary Ann Mantrell and her husband Gideon. They were all big names in the early dinosaur realm. And they actually collaborated on a lot of these early discoveries. One of them would dig it up and then someone else would write some description about it and hypothesize what it was. And yeah, so for about 20 years, they were just digging up these bones and figuring out, oh, this was a thing that's not around anymore, but couldn't really get further than that. And then Charles Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species in 1856. And so they finally had like, oh, these things evolved and turned into other things over time. So all of these discussions were happening in you know, the halls of academia, and most common people weren't familiar with the concept of giant lizards roaming the planet, or if they had heard of, oh, there's a thing called a dinosaur, you know, it's kind of hard to visualize that, especially, you know, if you're in England and you don't know what lizards look like, I guess. I don't, do they have lizards in England? I don't know. I, I feel like say, they have they? to. I mean, that feels like one of those, like, we'll it's just those. everywhere. Yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll just say British people don't have lizards. We'll just say that. Okay. I, I think that's right. it. Make that claim. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Irish people don't have snakes, so. Well, where did the snakes have to go then? Mm -hmm. To the British. They evolved to lizards. There you go. <laughs> that's oh, that's oh. how that works. Ah, yes. But, uh, so the, anyways, the first uh, mass pop culture experience of dinosaurs uh, that got people to be like, oh, that's what that thing looked like that I've been hearing about was in 1854 at the Crystal Palace, which had been originally built for the Great Exposition of 1851. Also mentioned in a previous episode, go back, listen. But in 1852 a series of statues were commissioned to be built on the grounds of the Crystal Palace to represent a select number of species of these newfangled dinosaur things. And so the statues included the aforementioned Megalosaurus and another famous dinosaur, the Iguanodon. Oh my god. And these statues took two years to construct and at the time were the most scientific rendering of the creatures that could be constructed. In total, there are 15 statues and 
only three today would be considered true dinosaurs. And if Jurassic Park is humorous for how we know dinosaurs look like now, oh, no. uh, these 1850s dinos are uh, worse by a factor of 10, probably. They look kind of goofy. Oh, I'm Please so excited. Please tell me we're going to see them. Please. So uh, here is a photo of what we currently believe Iguanodon to look like. You know, okay. It's famous for having a thumb that's like a spike used to protect itself, but otherwise, it's a pretty basic. It's so generic. Dinosaur. Man. It's a very basic generic dinosaur. Um, but back in the 1850s, they thought it looked uh, like uh, these guys here. It was an iguana, and then just scaled it up by a factor of ten. Okay. So they're <laughs> yeah. super chunky. It's and like it has a, like a dragon head almost. Yeah. Like, yeah. Did, did they change anything about the iguana at all, or did they just literally make a, a they, big they, iguana? It's yeah, it's big iguana basically. Big iguana with like a whole neck flap and everything, and uh, yeah, so they're kind of goofy looking. Uh, Megalosaurus was another one. Here's a photo of what, or a rendering of what we think. Megalosaurus is kind of like a, you think, predatory dinosaur. It looks like that. And they still went with the same thing of, make it a big crocodile. Oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah. Where's its neck? <laughs> it has no neck. Where does it's the just neck go? stubby. Yeah, and... Yeah, it's it has a very sad looking face. Oh, oh, who hurt you? Oh, oh no. But no. But uh yeah, it's you know, they like they got a bunch of these little statues, uh some like flying ones that are some swimming ones. And just a really long, like nosed crocodile, like the one on the right. Yeah. Yeah. Like needle nose. Maybe? It's like the uh, Princess and the Frog. There's like a really long nose yeah, crocodile that, like, on that. Yeah, super narrow, super long. Yeah, it's a uh... yeah big snoot. Doesn't know what wings look like. Well, they didn't know that. They <laughs> they're just big cups. Yeah, it, they're they're weird pictures. I'll post. I'll put links in the description for those listening to see. But yeah, there's some. Interesting looking statues compared to what we somewhat think, but you know, we can't hate them for it because They didn't know what a dinosaur was until 10 years before they built them. So oh, they, they tried so they, they hard. Tried. They tried their best Especially the no-necked one. They tried real hard <laughs> <laughs> uh, And interesting story about these statues. They're still there But the best story was that on New Year's Eve of it took two years to build and so on the new year's eve during the construction process the sculptor of the statues hosted a party inside of one of the iguanodon molds inside mm-hmm a party in there that fit more than one person so how um, big are these yeah so in 1853 uh to give you an idea of there's no photos of this party, but there's a famous sketch um, that shows at least 18 people 
standing or sitting around a table inside of this iguanodon mold. Oh, wow. So they had built a stage and had lights and candles and a table set up in the middle of it and had a party with all the famous paleontologist people inside of a dinosaur. Oh, that's really cute. It's a little cramped, but it's not like as cramped as I thought. And so, uh, yeah, that's very... Victorian people know how to have fun, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Would y'all eat inside of a dinosaur? Well, I'm yeah. Absolutely no question. That I would feel like that would be something uh, you'd see at like a rainforest cafe. Yes. Yeah, Jurassic Park cafe. Mm-hmm. But um, so yeah, that was just a neat little give you an idea of when people are figuring out what dinosaurs were. Uh, now the discoveries that I've mentioned so far, for the most part, have been taking place in Europe because that's where the scientists are, namely. <laughs> UK and Germany and the Netherlands, you know, so uh, let's hop across the pond to the United States and our dinosaur game. The first dinosaur in the US was discovered in 1858 and it was the Hadrosaurus, which is another very basic looking plant-eating dinosaur. And this specimen was discovered by William Parker Folk and was named by Joseph Leedy. It was one of Leedy's students who would spark the most dramatic period in the history of dinosaurs since the dinosaurs, the Bone Wars. Leedy's student was a name that was a man by the name of Edward Drinker Cope. And Cope was a former gifted kid with little proper education, but a lot of spirit and a quick temper. He published his first scientific paper at the age of 19, to give you an idea of this guy. He, he's like he's, Sheldon Smart? Yeah, Sheldon Smart, and he knows it too. Okay. So. Oh, so he's also arrogant. Yes. Awesome. Um, and during a trip to Berlin in 1864 to learn about some of these dinosaur things, Cope met a man by the name of Othniel Charles Marsh. Wow. Uh, Othniel hated his name because it's a terrible name. He changed it? He, he went by OC. Okay, <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. That's, so that's Marsh is uh, almost the exact opposite personality-wise. He was introverted, very much a stickler for the rules, but he was also very smart and knew it. And at first, whenever Marsh and Cope met, they got along quite well and spent a lot of time together for their time, during their time in Berlin, studying, and uh, they would even go on to name dinosaur species after each other's. So, real bros. And when they returned to the States, Marsh became the first professor of paleontology in the United States after he got a job at Yale University. And Cope returned to the States, got married, um, and he also got a teaching job, but ultimately he settled into a life of fieldwork, digging up bones across the U.S. I feel like that's more exciting than just being, just teaching people about it. Like just no, go teaching out. is really fun, though. Oh, but going out and digging up bones? I mean, Heck yeah. yeah. A little bit of both. No, I don't like talking to people. They can figure it out themselves. Marsh yeah. did do a bit of both, uh, and it was actually out digging up these bones that the drama began. 
So they're both working on field work and Marsh is finding some pretty impressive fossils in New Jersey, which Cope considered to be his home turf. He didn't like that Marsh was digging up his bones, you know. Mm. And uh, during the time, museums are trying to get any bone that they can just because they're new and they're just trying to expand their collections. And this dinosaur panic made it to be a very, uh, what's the word? You can get a lot of money. Oh yeah, oh, it's, it's uh, very lucrative. Lucrative, yeah, there you go. Uh, very lucrative industry. And it was very much a race, both for the economic gain of selling these bones, but also the race for scientific fame of being the first to discover a new species and name it and all that stuff. So Cope also came to find out that not only Marsh was digging up bones in his backyard, Marsh was also bribing dig site operators to divert the fossils from Cope's dig to Marsh. Ooh. Oh. The drama. Which... Some shady stuff. Yeah, it's... You're stealing my bones. <laughs> and uh, so that put a lot of strain on their relationship, as you can understand. But the incident that completely just destroyed any hope of reconciliation was in 1869, Cope discovered a new species of plesiosaur. Now, plesiosaurs are not dinosaurs. They are aquatic marine reptiles that lived at the same time. They're the super long neck swimming. What's to say, what makes it a distinction of not a dinosaur? I thought a dinosaur was just any What's animal it? like that. It's in from... water. Oh, but there are marine dinosaurs. Are there? Are there? I don't think so. No. Is that how that works? Is that the divide? Oh, okay. Uh, it's just different. You know, it's like, there's like levels of, you got phylum, class, order. Mm. It's a different level where they branch off okay. after reptile. That's strange. But sure. Okay. Um, but yeah, so anyways, he had discovered a new plesiosaur species, which, you know, was exciting. And he named this new species Elasmosaurus. And Cope thought it was super significant because through his interpretation of the f separate fossils that he found, uh, he described it that it had a rather short neck and a super long tail, which is kind of what the opposite of all other plesiosaurs were. And he wrote a paper about it and sent it off to be published. A few months go by, and Cope is showing off the fossils to Marsh and his mentor, Joseph Leidy. Now, depending on who you ask, this event uh, varies in how rude Marsh was, depending on if you ask Marsh or if you ask Cope. Uh, according to Marsh, he politely suggested uh, to Cope that the discovery that he made was wrong. And if you talk to Cope, apparently it was a very rude showing, shoving it in your face sort of deal. But what's the substance of the argument was that 
Marsh suggested that Cope was mistaken about the Elasmosaurus being novel because he simply put the head on the wrong side of the skeleton. I was going to say that's, that. That's cute. Yeah. But like weren't they, wasn't it, I guess it may not be placed very well, so they could have just like dug up the bones all randomly, but like. So the reason why Cope put the fossil together the way that he did was because it was kind of coiled up, I guess, oh. or like bent over. It wasn't just laying down flat or anything. So he simply put the head with the bones that it was found next to, which has happened to be on the short end of things. Well, whenever Lighty was asked his opinion, he said that Cope indeed had placed the head on the tail instead of the neck. And Cope was obviously embarrassed that he had wrote this paper describing this novel new species and uh, was beyond devastated that he had embarrassed himself in front of his mentor. And so he tried to buy up every single copy of the pre-printed article oh, buddy. before it was able to be no. published. Buddy, that, that, that looks way worse than just... Just own it. Yeah. Um, Just... And he changed his reconstruction and the paper, but the friendship with Marsh was gone forever because Marsh had so rudely pointed that out in the middle of a party and embarrassed him to his friends, you know? <laughs> oh. His smart friends. So that's uh, what starts this professional rivalry. And whenever the American West was discovered to be a treasure trove full of new dinosaur bones that were now newly accessible due to the expansion of transcontinental railroad and the removal of indigenous people, Kansas, Wyoming, the Dakotas, all became hot spots for people wanting to dig up some dinosaurs. And Marsh and Cope quickly set off west to stake claims on the different territories. And by the spring of 1873, they were openly hostile with each other, competing to find new bone beds and trying to sabotage each other's operations. Each would try to be the first to write back east and name newly discovered species, even if they knew that the other had already discovered the fossils at a different location. But if they got their article out first, they would be the one to name it, and they would have to use my name instead of your name, and ha ha ha, I win. My god. So yeah, they were just rushing article after article out, and it... A lot of materials were published during this time. They would go about uh, trying to bribe each other's workers to funnel off specimens from each other's dig sites. And on some occasion, it was reported by some of Marsh employees that he had used dynamite to destroy fossils rather than give Cope's workers the opportunity to dig in the same fossil bed. I mean, that's, that's a little petty. Oh, yeah, that's it's a, a... Oh, we gotta move on to the next site. There might be stuff here. Just blow it up so there's nothing left. That, yeah. That's, that's rude. Mm, bad uh, science. Yeah. And at this point in the rivalry, um, 
you could say that Marsh was winning. He had more connections in the government to help him get access to these locations and he was able to get more of his names to of species to stick in the scientific community than Cope. And by the end of the decade, Cope had also physically run out of space to store fossils at his home. And so he just wasn't able to keep up with Marsh. But go buy a warehouse or something like go rent. A I mean, they're super rich, both of them. Yeah. That's how they're able, they're both self-funded mostly. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you just physically run out of space. You just find the room. So you're saying he just wasn't trying hard enough? No, he could, okay, you can always stuff more somewhere. Like, I bet he didn't put it in his bedroom. You don't need all those bones either. Like, it, I'm sure there are museums wanting those, so you can sell off a few to make space. But they're my bones. And I found them before the other guy did, so they're my bones. But then you donate them to the museum, and you boom, sell bam. Them but then the they're museum. everyone's bones. No, they're my bones. Put your name uh, on it. Sharpie it on there. Then you make shirt. a museum and start charging tickets. Mm -hmm. And then you got the space and you got more money. I, I just, yeah. You did not run out of space. You never run out of space. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. They both kept building up their collections and Marsh was winning the war. But he wasn't completely victorious, though. In an incident similar to the Elasmosaurus debate, uh, Marsh discovered a sauropod skeleton long neck dinosaur mm -hmm. and he would it was mostly complete which was shocking most of the times you only find a couple of bones but there was not a skull on the skeleton and so marsh went through his collection and found a similar skeleton and so he just took the skull from that other skeleton and put it on in order to make all the drawings and stuff and uh, he named this new species Brontosaurus. Well, the skull that he took the creature from was an Apatosaurus, another long-necked dinosaur, and the lack of a skull ever being discovered for the Brontosaurus has uh, sparked an unending debate that continues to this day over whether or not Brontosaurus actually exists, or whether it was just a different sized patasaurus. Huh. I mean, that's that's fair. But like I get stealing the head just for like artists artistry's sake, you know, just to mm -hmm. draw the pictures, but like he left it on there. Yeah. Did he did he try to pretend that this is how it was and like he try to sell it that way? I don't think he pretended, but I think he just was like, Oh, it works, but some people are like, it works too well for it to be anything other than this other skeleton that you already had. But oh, okay. Yeah, it was a. It's like still going on today whether or not Brontosaurus actually exists and if it's just a subspecies of Apatosaurus or if it's just a juvenile Apatosaurus. And well, everything's a subspecies of something else. Like, you there's. You gotta line? draw. Yeah, you gotta draw a line somewhere, so. But, yeah, it's. I'm sure you can find paleontologists today that will have vicious arguments over whether or not Brontosaurus exists. 
But yeah, Marsh at this time had been appointed to the position of head paleontologist for the U.S. Geographical Survey, which gave him significant influence in the field. And Cope, in an attempt to keep up with Marsh in terms of output and growing connections, shifted some of his focus to silver and gold mining operations in order to get access to funds. But it, in the long run, it hurt him more financially because those mines eventually went dry, and so now he's out even more money. So... He know how to dig. Yeah, he know how to dig, but he's not as wealthy as Marsh. And Marsh now has the government job. So, uh, Cope's major win in the rivalry came about in a series of articles that he had published in the New York Herald in 1890. As it turned out, Cope had been keeping a very detailed diary of all the crimes and dubious actions that Marsh had been up to while he was an agent of the federal government. The yes. whole stealing and bribing and blowing up bones. <laughs> I like to imagine there were little like side notes of like, ha ha, like, ah. <laughs> it's like a personal diary almost. Yeah, personal diary is like, oh, I got him now. Well, these articles shocked the American public and the scientific community, who previous had only been, you know, lightly aware that these two didn't like each other. But these articles put the rivalry in full light of day and got a lot of people upset, not just because of the disruption of the scientific community, but a lot of the people who are mentioned in these diaries uh, you know, they weren't asked permission to be quoted or they oh were misquoted gosh. sometimes. And it threw shade on just other people in the paleontological community who were like, why does he not like me? I just <laughs> worked with the guy. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people got their names besmirched and it ruined their honor. And Besmirched? Besmirched, yeah. Okay, he's going to casually say that. I've never uh, heard that word in my life. But yeah, it was um, so bad that there were calls for congressional investigation. And while none of them were uh, direct, while there wasn't a congressional investigation directed at Marsh, the allocations of fiscal mismanagement led to broader investigations of the geological survey and Marsh's boss. And so Marsh was ultimately forced to resign from the geological survey. Oh, the ultimate petty move. I'm not super sad to see him go. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was at the same time, because now Marsh has lost his job, that he tried to end the rivalry once and for all. Uh, so he used his position in the geological survey uh, to lobby the government to pass regulations stating that fossil specimens that had been discovered with the help or funding of the geological survey were property of the government and not the individual collectors, or if it was discovered on federal property. And so he was trying to make it to where then the government could confiscate all of Cope's fossils. 
because they were discovered on government land. Oh no. So just steal all his bones. I mean, that is kind of strange that, I mean, I guess it was like, yeah, you're a scientist, so the government doesn't necessarily need the bones, so like, you'll keep them for your scientific research, but at the same time, it's like, those probably should. If, it uh, should be belong, on. Whatever's on the government's property, sure, it probably yeah. belongs yeah, like, to them. The person can do it, like what science thing they do with them, but just it's still owned by the government. Yeah. That makes sense. Government bones. Exactly. Well, Marsh, ironically, was also affected by these laws that he helped write. So he ended up losing a lot of his collection, but he was able to negotiate to be able to keep his most important fossil finds at Yale University, which is where he was a professor. So he, he was able yeah. to stay close to them. It's kind of funny how he, like, took a plea deal. Yeah. <laughs> and... But the attempt of stealing all of Cope's bones and lack of financial means of maintaining his collection, Cope was forced to sell off a good portion of his collection to different museums to make ends meet. And by the 1890s, both men were nearly bankrupt from having spent their whole lives frolicking across the country and paying each other paying other people to dig up bones for them and then doing all the science to maintain those bones and yeah lost a lot of money it's very hard it's expensive being petty yeah expensive being petty and rich <laughs> so cope ultimately became debilitatingly ill and he died in 1897 and the last shot fired in the Bone Wars, with probably the most petty of them all. Uh, this time it was not about a fossil, but his own bones. Oh no. Oh my god. So, upon his death, Cope donated his skull to science. And as a condition, he asked it to be measured by phrenologists to determine his level of intelligence. We've mentioned phrenology before, but basically it was, it's, it's a pseudoscience that believes, oh, if you have certain bumps in certain places on your skull, then it can determine your intelligence. Okay. It was used by racists and all sort of eugenicists and whatever. So it doesn't actually mean anything, but they believed it did back then. So he wanted his skull to be measured to see how smart he was. And he then challenged Marsh to do the same upon his death, hoping that Marsh's brain would be smaller. Oh, like, no. <laughs> Therefore, proving Cope was the better person. Just let it go. Literally let it go. Marsh did not accept the challenge, <laughs> and he died two years later. So uh, he, we would do not know who was smarter. But uh, I think it's the University of Pennsylvania has Cope's brain still. I mean, not his brain, but his skull. <laughs> so... Well, uh, they can still measure it based on that. No, they same. can't measure. Well, not marshes. marshes. He, oh. he didn't put his head up for science. We'll go dig it up. Real quick. Is it on government property? I don't know. <laughs> Belongs to the government. I don't know. Uh, I think it's. What's the? There's. Uh, I think it's like fifty years for is the line between grave robbing and archaeology. So. It's only 50? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the line? Because like, you can dig up stuff from World War II and it's considered archaeology, right? Like people? Oh, I mean... It, hmm. 
I mean, mm. what do you think the line is? I think I feel like people. If you accidentally dig up somebody, like in a random field, you know, like you didn't know that was some long ago, you know, war field, then sure, it's an accident. But like literally going into a cemetery, I would say right any now, like active cemeteries where it's like there are still people visiting. Yeah, like maybe. Okay, well, not hi hypothetically. What should the line be between oh, grave God. robbing and archaeology? If they are in a like actual cemetery, fenced in, then. You should never dig it up, ever. It's a person, you know. Well, the pharaohs in Egypt, that's the cemetery. All right, well, sure. There's pyramids, so. That's a little far back, but, like, the modern ones that we know today. That's what I'm saying, active ones. Like, yeah. Unless, like, nobody's going to visit the pharaoh's grave to visit the pharaoh's grave. They're like, oh, pyramid. If yeah. If it's, like, within, you know, grandfather, great-grandfather range. Yeah, it's like, not, no, like, active bad. family members still checking it out. It's a little icky. I don't like it. So I could, no, okay. So I don't know. I could literally go and go dig up somebody from 50 years ago. I don't think you can, no, but I think that's just <laughs> a general rule of thumb for archaeologists. Okay, so if I, like, license myself properly, I can go do that, and it's fine. For Like, if I have some specific reason, I guess. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Those dinosaurs should never be dug up. That is their personal grave. Mm. Oh, okay. They didn't. Their what? rights are important. Yeah, dinosaur too. rights. Where's PETA? What? Where does PETA stand on dinosaurs? On dinosaur rights. Well, considering that they're not alive anymore, I feel like we have to speak for them. We have to yeah. speak. Yeah, mm. we can speak for the dead. Mm -hmm. That's the takeaway here. Yes. But. Uh, so yeah, uh, the fossil collections of these two men went on to form the basis of the collections at the American Museum of Natural History and the Smithsonian. Uh, and to give you an idea of the sheer scale of their contributions to the field, prior to the Bone Wars, there were nine named dinosaur species total. The, How many are there now, or after them? Well, the two together over their career, described over 120 prehistoric species, including 80 dinosaurs and for Marsh, and then 56 dinosaurs for Cope. Well, that's really cool. I mean, yeah, they contributed a lot, but they're also petty assholes that don't deserve the notoriety, <laughs> but sure. Well, they, they did help a lot in the pettiness. Uh, damaged the reputation of the paleontological community for a while, but, you know, it eventually worked out, I guess. Um, but yeah, so the 80 and the 56 number of species that each of them discovered, they do need a bit of an asterisk because as science has progressed, a lot of the different species that they identified have been re-identified and either no longer considered dinosaurs or just a species that had already been discovered by someone else sort of deal. Um, but they are responsible for some of the more iconic dinosaurs, including Triceratops, Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, and Coelophysis. So You lost me at the last two, but I totally <laughs> Allosaurus <get> <laughs> is another T-Rex type thing, and Coelophysis okay. is... Um, the super tiny dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Oh. Little tiny. Oh, yeah. Little guys that eat the girl at the start of the second movie. 
Well, I only watched the original first one. Oh, you haven't seen... That's, that's the only one I got here. Jurassic Park Lost World or no. Jurassic Park 3 or None any of the, of the Jurassic ones, no. Worlds. Mm -mm. I watched the one out of um, it's one of my friend's favorite movies. And so I'm like, okay, fine, I'll watch it. I'll give it a try. And I was going to watch the rest of them and then I forgot. Mm. But I did really like it. So they really had an impact on you personally. Oh yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. sounds like <laughs> Have you seen them all, Ryan? I feel like I've seen bits and pieces of the second and third one of the mm -hmm. original, but I've seen all the world except for this new, the new one. Yeah, because Jurassic World is just the dinosaurs are no longer on the island. Well, They're everywhere now. What's the guy that like does the Capital One commercials now, or like whatever it is? That one of the main guys, oh, the black-haired yeah. guy, Jeff Goldblum. I yeah, not all the names, but he does like the. Is it insurance? Is it? It's some kind of. It's apartments.com, I think. That, he does yeah. a lot of stuff, yeah. Apartments.com, sponsor us. Yes. Jeff Goldblum, sponsor us. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum, sponsor us. <laughs> and it was some kind of like very businessy thing but, that he did. Yeah, uh, I've seen the original trilogy and the first of the Jurassic World. But I haven't seen any of the other ones because I was not very impressed by the first Jurassic World. So it's kind of a, it's kind of like the new Star Wars trilogy where they're just trying to pad out more content. So it's like, okay, it's the same thing but newer. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. But I mean, they are all the same. First Jurassic Park is obviously that. Second Jurassic Park is a dinosaur gets stuck in like San Diego. And then in the third one is they have to go back to the island, but this time they're looking for a kid that got lost. And then Jurassic World is the first one. Where it's like, oh, we just did They the went park back again. to the island and do the park again, so it's literally the exact same thing. And then But we've invented new dinosaurs. Yeah. And the second one is The second yeah. yeah, the second one is actually more interesting because it's like a black market spin on it mm. where it's like we're starting to have people sell like militarized dinosaurs and then spoiler alert the reason it's called jurassic world is because they're just let loose mm. and then the new one you've seen the trailers probably yeah. and maybe even seen it but like it's the dinosaurs are literally just out everywhere yeah with people so there's six total yes okay now i have five to watch i to guess catch so. up <laughs> but um yeah, so they found some iconic dinosaurs. Marsh was also uh, helped a lot in developing the evidence for the theory of evolution. He discovered a lot of transitional fossils for American horses that was like, oh, they used to have more than just one toe. <laughs> they have more than one toe? They had three for a bit, and then they only needed the one because they grew shorter. I can't picture a horse's foot right now. I can't remember what it looks like. It's just a big like. round block, and then like cows have the two toes. So horses do have like one big thing. One big thing on their foot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One hoof. Hoof. Oh god, I hate that word. Hoof. Hooves. Ew. <laughs> Such a gross word. And uh, but yeah, Cope actually was not a believer in evolution. Strangely enough, uh, he believed that offspring would take up characteristics of their parents um so basically like be say um 
your father was a blacksmith, therefore he's strong, so you are going to be strong because he got stronger because he was a blacksmith. So that passes down? Apparently, All according right. to him. Okay. But then it's also like, oh, but then your you father have... lost an arm, so you're not gonna have an arm? Okay. Yeah, it's like your father, ha your father has the capability of becoming strong, so you are capable of being strong. Okay. I mean, I mean very loosely. Technically, yeah. yeah. But, mm. Sure, okay. Um, Cope, most of his major contributions uh, extended to different scientific fields because he had a lot of prongs in the fire. Mostly, uh, he was involved in ichthyology, which is the study of fish, and he personally cataloged over 300 different species of fish. Hmm. He is also notable for his academic writing prolificness. Uh, over his lifetime, he published uh, over 1,400 scientific articles. Ugh. Wow. So, yeah, that's the Bone Wars. So the takeaway from all of this is that the government owns your bones. The government owns your bones. And you can't do nothing about it. And science only gets done if there's two people competing. Yeah. So. I mean, it's a big motivator. You just have to find someone, choose to hate them, embarrass them, <laughs> just totally drag them out, and then, uh, yeah, you save the world by finding bones that the you don't own. There you go. And steal other people's bones. So. Hopefully, y'all enjoyed the topic, and if you did, please tell your friends about us. I put some of the sources down in the show notes. If you want to go a little deeper into the subject, our instrumental music is by Mountaineer. You can find their music and more on Upbeat.io. As always, we want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwa, as well as other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you want to tell us about your favorite dinosaur, you can reach out to us at History Spelunkers. That's history, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with me. Until next time. Bye-bye.